There's a hill in Kenya, in Pokot, in the northwest of Kenya, called Tarakit. It's an extremely steep hill, and I've often had to climb it to get to the people who farm on the ridges on the top of that hill. I'm not a great climber, and so it's not long before I start that my knees and my muscles are aching. But as I look up and I can see where the top is, then it gives me new strength. I'm not so far away. I'm often egged on. It's not far now. We're halfway. We're three quarters of the way. And so I'm able to carry on to the end. The Christian life can be like that. There are times when it's wearisome, when it's full of dangers, when we can become disheartened and we can be tempted to give up. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39 that we're considering, Paul has three questions he's asking, the third of which we're going to consider this morning that answers this very situation. First of all, the question basically was, will God's attitude towards his elect ever change? Or as it's put, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, God's attitude will never change. Why? Because of Christ. That's found in verses 31 and 32. Then the question is, will our sins ever bring us into condemnation? What's the answer? Well, it's found in verses 33 and 34. It's impossible because of Christ. Now, here's the third question. As we face that uphill climb to the top, as we go through the the path, the straight and narrow path that leads to glory. Will I fail? Because there are so many dangers and so many enemies. And what's the answer? It's impossible because of Christ. Indeed, Paul's triumphant answer in this passage is we are more than conquerors, verse 37. We shall completely conquer. Well, if God can't fail, and if I can't fail, then victory is certain. And this needs to be our fundamental attitude to life. May God help us this morning to drink deeply from this refreshing fountain of truth. First of all, there's this question in verses 35 and 36. It's a, a challenge to doubt the future. Here it is. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then there's a list of things. Can anything take away the love of Christ so that we no longer experience it? 
And Paul looks around him at all the realities of life for the Christian. All the imaginable things on earth and any spiritual power he can think of. And he issues this spiritual challenge. Who shall separate us? Can you imagine a mother holding her darling baby to her breast, challenging anyone to tear that baby from her grip? But look at the weakness of the Christian, of you, of me. I'm just a single human being. I'm created. I am weak. Look at my past record. It's terrible. When all these things are listed, it seems a complete mismatch. It's rather like Gideon. He goes out to fight the Midianites and their allies. They are spread in the valley like locusts in number. You may never have experienced locusts, but you've seen pictures of them. They're there in East Africa right now in their millions. Indeed, it says that the Midianites and their camels couldn't be counted. And there was Gideon with 300 men. It seemed futile. But that is the picture of the Christian life. The Christian, with such opposition against him or her. You see, there's no idea in the Bible that the Christian will have a problem-free life. It's false to think that when you as a Christian, you have a problem, it means that there must be a specific sin or worse. That's the evidence that the love of Christ has been withdrawn from you. So you look at this passage very carefully. Rather, God's people will experience, have been promised, first of all, tribulation. So he asks, shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Jesus said in John 16 and verse 33, in the world, you have tribulation. You can't live in the world and not experience tribulation. When Paul was seeking to encourage the Christians in the new churches of the first missionary journey in Acts 14, he told them to encourage them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. To the Thessalonian church who knew what tribulation, what afflictions were all about, when he was forced to leave, he wrote to them. And he says, I've told you again and again that we are destined to experience such afflictions. Can they separate us from the love of Christ? And then there's distress. The word means something that presses on us, that gives pain, 
that causes physical, mental and emotional hurt. Now, none of us would choose such distresses. Can they separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to persecution. We will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, Paul tells Timothy, will be persecuted. Jesus talks in the parable of the sower about those who will be persecuted on account of the word and they fall away. To be persecuted means you're not spoken well of, you're falsely accused, you're unjustly treated. May lead to what comes next, famine, nakedness, perils or danger. The sorts of things that Paul went through. Listen how he describes in Second. Corinthians chapter 11, his experience in 2 Corinthians 11, 25, 26, he says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. My friends, that's been the experience of God's people throughout the ages, from the time of Cain, when he rose up and killed his brother because his brother's sacrifice was accepted and his was rejected. Hear this in Hebrews chapter 11 from the middle of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. It's not just in the Bible. Imagine that your Abdi, he's alive today. When he says to his family, I've become a Christian. They say, if we meet you, we shall kill you. Imagine your Mungai, the time of the Mau Mau, back in the 1950s. And you're offered a choice. Take the oath, or we kill you. Deny Christ, or we kill you. Imagine you're Erite in Rendili. You have a choice. Keep the traditions, and you can stay in fellowship with us in the circle of huts. Refuse the traditions, and you're no longer welcome in our society. And one can multiply around the world situations where persecution has led to all sorts of deprivation and to death itself. And the only reason for it is that 
you follow Jesus Christ as your all in all. But the question is this, can those experiences separate you from the love of Christ? Actually, Paul goes even further. With rhetorical flourish, he now conceives of every possible thing. Is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? Look here at verses 38 and verses 39. He starts with death. Death and all its terrors. Can that separate us from the love of Christ? But then there's life. Life is attractive. How many people have fallen away because of the world? But life is also difficult and the, the struggles of life are tempting. But can they separate you from the love of Christ? What about angels and rulers as spiritual powers, whether good or evil? And there are hosts of wickedness in the spiritual, in the heavenly places. Paul thinks of things present. And then he imagines anything that can be imagined in the future. Can those separate you from the love of Christ? Then there are powers. Think of the most powerful, authoritative people, authorities, governments. Think of Rome. Think of China. Can they separate you from the love of Christ? And then he thinks, because he's running out of language, he's ransacking all the words he can think of. What about height? Something as high as heaven. What about depth? Something as deep as hell. And just in case he's left anything out, he ends by saying, nor anything else in all creation. Everything, anything is included. They're all seeking to draw us away from Christ, if they could. That's quite some impressive list, isn't it? Can we really have the victory when all those things are arrayed against us? Well, Paul's answer is very clear. He says you can have full assurance about the future. No matter how great, powerful, many, spiritual, your enemies may be. It's true they are far, far stronger than you are. As terrible as your situation may be, Paul says, the word of God says, God tells us, verse 39, they are not able 
to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not simply will not. They cannot. It's impossible. So let's look at it in a bit more detail. First of all, in verse 37, we read, we are more than conquerors. Now, a conqueror is one who, in the end, he wins. He may suffer many defeats on the way. He may receive many injuries, but finally, he overcomes his enemy. But this is not such a victory. This is not a victory by, as we say, the skin of our teeth. We read, we are more than conquerors. Literally, we are hyper conquerors. We're super conquerors. There's never any appearance or possibility of defeat. The worst is death. But even that is victory. All the schemes and attacks of the enemy are actually part of the very path by which God brings us to glory. Isn't that wonderful? The devil thinks we're on the road to defeat. But actually that very road is the road to victory. He tried to destroy Job. But at the end, Job confessed. I'd heard of you, God. But I've learned now much more about you. Through all I've gone through, now my eyes see you. And I humble myself in dust and ashes. Now it was supremely against Christ that the devil hurled all his fiery darts. If only he could destroy the Son of God. When Judas betrayed him because Satan had entered his heart, when the chief priests arrested him, when Pilate condemned him, when the soldiers nailed him to the cross, oh, it was as if the devil a God is way. But that was the way of victory. Let's remember Acts 4 and verse 28. The opposition of everybody united against Christ only managed to do whatever God's hand and what God's plan had predestined to take place. Think of the example of Paul again. Paul had experienced such blessings. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He was in danger of spiritual pride. So God took preventative action. But he used Satan. He sent a messenger of Satan. This thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. But it was painful. Whether that's physical Mental, spiritual, it was painful enough for Paul to pray three times, Lord, take it away from me. 
but it was God's purpose. Satan was seeking to destroy, but through that very action of Satan, God was protecting his servant from the sin of pride. And so Paul says, I rejoice now in my weakness. What a blessing. Such a distress and such affliction turned out to be. So, my dear friend, when you go through various trials, is it the devil who's got loose from God's grip and is terrorizing you? No. Is he not on a strong lead? Only able to do what God wants for the good of his people. So the very trials turn to the benefit of God's people. As we read at the beginning in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, the slight momentary affliction is actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. If we had no trials, would we ever think of our weakness and our mortality? Would we ever cry to God in childlike dependence? Would we ever look forward to glory? No, we'd be more like a spoiled brat because we'd never had discipline. Well, sadly, we get disappointed when things don't turn out our way. When things come to us, disease and infirmity, we don't get the job we wanted. We don't do well enough in the exams that we'd hoped. There's no more money for the course that we want to do. Marriage turns out difficult. But in all those scenarios, the devil wants to destroy. But God is working for good. He's showing his love to you and to me. God is not seeking to destroy, but to purify. Satan wanted to destroy Job because he accused him of being a hypocrite. Job said, when God has tested me, I shall come forth as pure gold. God's purpose is to fit us for heaven. In Kenya, we hosted many refugees. They had fled war, some of them, persecution, others of them, in surrounding countries to Kenya. Some of them had left everything, left all their possessions, left their families. And they came to Kenya with nothing. What did they find in Kenya? Some of them found Christ. They lost those things which were of no eternal value. And they found that which was of eternal 
value. What does it gain a person if they have the whole world but lose their own soul? The worst that can happen to us is for us to be killed. It seems defeat, but even that we're told is gain. It's going to be with Christ. So then note, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yes, God is fighting for us. He loves us. But we are the ones who, by his power and through his love, we're the ones fully active in the battle, consciously persevering. We are more than conquerors. And the second thing we see here is that it's through him who loved us, verse 37. This is not like Philippians 4 and verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But now I can do all things. I can be more than a conqueror through him who loves me. This refers specifically to his act of love on the cross of Calvary. So, securing an eternal salvation. Now remember what Christ has done in his love through the cross. He has bound the strong man so that his goods, you and me, might be released. Or as it's put in Colossians 2 verse 15. He has disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Or as Revelation puts it, he's bound the devil and thrown him into the pit that he should deceive the nations no more. So the decisive battle against all the enemies has been won on the cross. Now it's just mopping up operations. Look how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1. Christ who has died and risen. And it says he's been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he's put all things under his feet. And gave him his head over all things to the church. This is why the cross of Christ then is absolutely central. This is why we constantly remember the love of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Christ crucified is your strength. In the cross and through his resurrection and exaltation. He's already triumphed. He's been exalted in glory. He's interceding. And you and all Christians are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And therefore, Paul makes this absolutely certain, strong statement. He says, in verse 38, for I am sure. 
There is no doubt about it. Because of all that he's written, there's nothing, there's no one who can separate you from the love of God in Christ. It's not only Christ who has loved you, but it's the Father in giving the Son. And this saving love of the Father is only found in the Son. There's no such love outside the Son. What, my friends, do you have to fear if you are loved by the Eternal Father and by the Divine Son? You will persevere. You will be a super conqueror. I trust none of you are saying or asking, well, can't my sins separate? Paul has answered that one already in verses 31 and 32. No, Christ took them all, them all, and there is therefore now no condemnation. Well, what about those scriptures that suggest the possibility that those who profess Christ can be lost? Well, first of all, notice it's those who profess Christ. Many falsely profess Christ. And they certainly will be lost unless they truly come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. But no true Christian can be lost. Those passages which seem to suggest it, they can't contradict the promises of God, such as we have here in Romans 8, 37 to 39. Rather, those warnings are one of the means God uses to preserve his people. He says, if you continue to the end, you'll be saved. That's the encouragement you need to continue to the end. You tell your little child, don't put your hand on the burner. You'll be burned. You'll be hurt. The warning is designed to stop the child from ever going near the fire. But there are people who respond what you've been telling us, that there's absolute certainty, surely that's going to lead to careless living. If people grasp that, that they are absolutely secure in Christ, not by anything that they've done, but through faith in Christ because he's done it all, then it appears to be that whatever they do, They'll be saved. Now we don't have the opportunity to look at that in detail. Paul actually deals with it in Romans chapter 6. He says there are some who are suggesting that if salvation is by grace, if justification is by grace, let sin, that grace may abound. And Paul finds that absolutely abhorrent. He says, it can't be. 
Don't you know what happens when a person becomes a Christian? You don't only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but believing you're united to Christ and you die to sin and you rise to new life. You do rise to new life. It's impossible to believe in Christ and continue to lead the old life. That's exactly what James deals with in chapter 2 of his letter. You say you have faith? Well, where are your works? It's impossible to have saving faith without having a changed lifestyle. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have a new heart. That's going to express itself in a new way of living. So now I ask you this morning, are you sure? Are you confident that victory is certain? If so, on what basis? It could be presumption. It could be what you've promised, what you've done, or what you're going to do. But if you say it's because of Christ, then that is the sure ground of final victory. To say you can't be assured, to say I can't have victory because I'm too great a sinner. That's unbelief. And it's to belittle the dying love of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it, it's true. We don't deserve anything. Don't even deserve the air that we breathe. It's all the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But if those who have entrusted their lives and their eternity to Christ can be sure of anything it's of their spiritual future in Christ you know such assurance is a gift of God you need it such certainty brings joy and the joy of the Lord is your strength. How can you live in this world with uncertainty? You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Well, you can dumb your senses. You can re refuse to think honestly, seriously about the future. You can say, well, I think I'm just going to be an optimist. That's the way I'm going to live. But there's no rational basis of those things. What will you do if tomorrow something that you didn't expect, some trouble, comes? Something you didn't want? Where then will be your optimism? No. In Christ... You have the basis of a sure hope that nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Well, praise the Lord for such truth that God has brought us.
this morning. Let us pray. Father, if it wasn't written, we couldn't possibly believe it's true. But we thank you that you have assured us, notwithstanding all the things arrayed against us, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Please encourage today the discouraged. Strengthen the faint-hearted. May we all find that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Please bless your word, Lord. To your name be the glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.